our subject at hand, Thomas Woodrow Wilson. It's not exactly a portrait that gives us a lot of clues as to who the sitter was, what he may have stood for, who he represented. I think it's even hard to even distinguish um, the gentleman's age in this portrait. We have to credit uh, the artist, John Christian Johansson. It is just a study. It's a study for a much larger portrait that Johansson did of the peacemakers at Versailles. At some time in 1919, while Wilson and the other world leaders were gathered in Paris to discuss the remaking of the world, the peace after the First World War I, Johansson was able to get brief sittings uh, with each of the major participants. So we believe at some point in 1919, um, in Wilson's apartments in Paris, um, he was able to sit uh, with this gentleman right here. Now, I could stand up here and talk and lecture for two and a half hours on Woodrow Wilson, but I need you to help me as well. Who is the guy? Who is this man? What do you see in this study of the 64-year-old man pictured there? Stern. He looks rather young for a man of 64 who probably had suffered from the Spanish influenza during his passage over to Paris in December of 1918 and was pretty much stricken. And if this was after his return trip to Washington in March of 1919, this man probably just had a small stroke and wasn't really in the top of his game. What else about this man? He's, he's sort of isolated, and one of the last things you would ever say about Woodrow Wilson was that he was an isolationist. There's an isolationist, Mr. Harding over there. He was such a poor president that the artist had to put the presidential seal on his portrait so we'd know what he was all about. When Wilson arrived in Paris, George Clemenceau, the tiger of France, said, God Almighty himself only had ten commandments. This Woodrow Wilson has fourteen. What else does he remind you of? A visionary? A madman? Oh, come on, it's early in the evening. Thoughtful. Thoughtful. The schoolmaster? Intellectual. An intellectual. The schoolmaster. Well, very good. Well, thank you for arriving at that. It took a little prodding. Uh, but I was asked to speak uh, this month of September uh, to talk about Wilson not so much as President of the United States, um, world statesman, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, 
But um, as a man of, of, as an academic, Wilson spent 27 of his years uh, in academia. He taught at Bryn Mawr, Wesleyan in Connecticut, Princeton University, became the first lay president of Princeton University in 1902. He held that job for eight years, the same amount of time that he held the presidency. A man who didn't learn to read until he was 12 years old, who suffered from a learning disability, which today we would say perhaps was dyslexia. He was finally able to teach himself how to read by teaching himself his own version of shorthand that he corrupted and would sit in his father's church pew and listen to his father's speeches, his sermons, and he would sit there and write out his father's remarks in shorthand. And so finally at age 12... A man who would write over 28 books, thousands of articles, thousands of, of journalists, journals and, and articles, the only American president to this day to have an earned doctoral degree um, would learn to read. He went off to Davidson College in North Carolina, but he hated it. He was quite the mother's boy, and he suffered from bouts of indigestion. You know, in the 1850s, 1860s, indigestion was a big thing. So his many letters to his mother, his mother finally gave up and brought him back home. His father, however, nudged him along and said, well, there's that fine Presbyterian school up in New Jersey. At this time, the Wilsons were living in Augusta, Georgia, uh, we're going to send you to Princeton. And so uh, Wilson was sent off to Princeton in 1875, became a member of the class of 1879, distinguished himself there, uh, and got a degree. He then decided what to do with his life. He did not want to go into the family business, which was the Presbyterian ministry, and he decided to attend the University of Virginia, where he read the law. He didn't get a degree in law. He read the law from the University of Virginia. But he passed the, law, the bar exam in the state of Georgia uh, brilliantly. He then decided that he would uh, practice law uh, in Atlanta. He found law tedious. He, didn't, he found it lonely. He didn't like all the countless hours of processing paper, making things right just so that the clerks of the court who were less educated than he uh, could file everything away and then wait about to be called in and plead his cases. Um, so he decided that he wanted to continue his education. In 1885, Wilson takes really a bold step. He applies to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Hopkins was just recently set up as the first university to actually to receive an advanced degree. There at Hopkins, he wrote his thesis, Congressional Government, and in 1875, 1885, excuse me, it was published. 
Uh, and for many, many years, it was part of the general curriculum in American political science. Woodrow Wilson's study of how the American system of, of government should work. That there were separate branches, the role of the president as the chief executive, the role of Congress and what their role should be in enacting laws, um, and so forth. He went on from there, as I mentioned. Um, Hopkins at that time had a sister school, Bryn Mawr in Pennsylvania, also founded by the Quakers. And uh, Wilson decided, okay, we'll give teaching a try. Didn't work out for him, however. Uh, he thought the whole notion of teaching women history just was not something that he was going to be able to stomach or to do. So he gave up at Bryn Mawr, went up to Wesleyan in Connecticut. There he, he flourished and excelled, uh, coached the football team, was very, very active, really got into uh, planning his lectures, continued with his writing, um, supporting his family in this business um, of, of education as a professor. When Princeton, however, called and was looking for a professor of jurisprudence and history, uh, Wilson gushed at the opportunity, and it was there that Wilson certainly flourished. His classes were always the first to be subscribed to. Each year, he was voted the pr best professor on campus. There, he continued to, to coach the football teams and attend the rallies. He began his lecturing career. He went back to Hopkins and was a visiting lecturer. He would get on the train uh, in Princeton and go down to Baltimore where he'd lecture, get back on the train, back up to Princeton, uh, would lecture at Columbia. He was a guest lecturer as far west as the University of Chicago uh, and the uh, University of Denver. He was there in, um, in 1876 at the Chicago Exhibition uh, with Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, closing of the frontier, one of uh, the famous uh, one of the famous speeches that Wilson had given uh, to that point, he was making a name for himself. To put money on the family table, uh, he wrote a serialized uh, a, a biography uh, of George Washington uh, for Harper's Magazine. It was very popular. Howard Pyle, the famous illustrator, I think there's some of Howard Pyle's works in the American Art Wing, uh, did the illustrations. Uh, he wrote his Division and Reunion, the first accounting of the American Civil War, though Wilson, sort of an everyman, I didn't go into his really family history, was living in the South in 1856 uh, when the war, um, he was born in 1856, was living um, in Augusta, Georgia, so he experienced the war as a southerner. But his division and reunion became one of the quintessential histories uh, of that period, and it was very much an unvarnished look at the political realities behind the Civil War, far removed from just slavery. He would then go on to publish his three-volume history of the American people, once again, uh, very well read, many, many uh, editions were published. So here's this man who was doing quite well uh, as an academic. Each year he would get a raise, 
he would finally have enough money to build a house for himself on Library Place in Princeton. And then the trustees of Princeton University called him to be, as I mentioned earlier, the first lay president of Princeton, um, the College of New Jersey, which had been traditionally a Presbyterian seminary up to that time. Wilson wanted to create what he had experienced at Hopkins and to make Princeton into a modern university. As an academic, he felt he had uh, the opportunities to sort of create reform from within. The trustees had all been sons of ministers or, or in the ministry himself, and he knew that there were lots of challenges that would face him to sort of create uh, a new way of thinking in this very, very old, established um, uh, university uh, college. He started to bring about reforms. The first thing that he did was creating the preceptoral system where he asked the professors to live among the students so that they would, again, nurture the students in all disciplines, whether it was in the subject matter that they knew about, but to bring along all the students in a more collegial and a more friendly way. To that same end, in trying to democratize Princeton, Wilson wanted to do away with the eating clubs. The eating clubs were, were uh, above the Greek organizations. Uh, they were how you sort of associated uh, your living arrangements, where you took your meals, and certainly the people you fell into within those first few months at Princeton were probably going to be your friends for life and the people that you would only associate uh, with during your entire time there. When the time came to actually build a graduate school, uh, Wilson faced his biggest challenge about where to locate that graduate school. Wilson wanted to locate the graduate school within the heart of the undergraduate school so that the graduate professors and the graduate students could mix with the undergraduates and, again, create a more enriching community. The trustees, however, wanted to follow a more formal, a more German sort of model, and locate it as a separate entity uh, across Carnegie Lake on land that they had available to build. And this was a challenge that Wilson staked his entire reputation on, and he lost. He lost. At about the same time, people started getting interested in Wilson. Um, as perhaps entering politics. Uh, he would enter the political race for governor of New Jersey uh, in 1910 as a Democrat. He had the support of the, uh, the Tammany-style, let's call them political bosses from, uh, from Trenton um, and, and the large Newark uh, so we had a groundswell of political support. So sight unseen, they sort of said, okay, we have no one else. We're Democrats. The Republicans had controlled the White House since the Civil War and most state houses. Uh, they were desperate enough to take this uh, college professor, uh, writer of books, uh, and put him on the ticket. Well, lo and behold, um, Wilson wins. Uh, surprising uh, a, a lot of folks, certainly, and more so surprising 
those folks who, um, um, who sort of pushed him up to the front. Because what they didn't realize is that this Woodrow Wilson fellow um, was, was really a progressive reformer through and through. And one of the first things he did was sort of uh, seek to erode the power of those same uh, precinct bosses and people who put him into power. So he sort of turned them on their heads uh, right from the start. The one person that he took along with him, however, was a man named Joseph Tumulty, uh, who would become Wilson's personal secretary for the rest of his political life. Uh, Tumulty became the political side of Woodrow Wilson, where Wilson continued to be um, the professorial side uh, of, of, of a politician. Uh, Tumulty would take care of Wilson's political side for many, many years to come. When asked why he would leave uh, academic life uh, for politics, Wilson said, have you ever attended a faculty meeting? You're supposed to laugh <laughs> as well. So we should know the story from here, but I'll, I'll continue, and I know I want to keep you on time and allow you to have time for questions. In 1911, the Democratic Party, again, once again, as we marched through the hall, I had you take note of uh, some of the presidents from Lincoln on, there was only one Democrat uh, in between, and that was Grover Cleveland. Twice, he comes in, goes uh, after... Uh, Hayes, right? No, uh, um, oh, I can't. Yes, Hayes, and then he comes back. So Grover Cleveland, twice. Um, and so the Democrats on, on the 40th ballot uh, would not renominate William Jennings Bryan, who was their perennial candidate um, from the 1890s forward. Uh, so Wilson gets the nod on this ticket against William Howard Taft who was the sitting president. And then that troublesome Theodore Roosevelt, who pledged after winning a term on his own right as a very young man, pledged that he would not seek more than one terms in his own right, decides, well, you know, I'm tired of hunting game and doing all the crazy things that I want to do in life, so uh, decides to challenge his own party's um, uh, candidate, William Howard Taft, and creates a third party, um, the Bull Moose Party. So that's how Professor Wilson becomes the 28th president of the United States. Shouldn't have happened, and it barely happened. Uh, there was no mandate. Wilson, I think it was won by 47% of the vote. Taft and Roosevelt split the difference of what was left of 53. And um, Woodrow Wilson becomes president of the United States. Along with that, however, a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. Senate. Which brings us back to what was the title of Wilson's thesis? Congressional government. Congressional government. Wilson now has the opportunity to put his thesis into play. 
on the first day uh, after his inauguration, Woodrow Wilson schedules an address before a joint session of Congress, and he lays out his plan, the new freedom, perhaps, uh, from his political uh, planks uh, that he ran on, a list of progressive reforms that he said he wanted Congress to do their part in enacting. They were all spelled out. The legislation was all practically written. uh, And he asked Congress, therefore, to do their part. Wilson returned to the Senate, the president's room in the Senate, um, four or five times during the course of his first uh, uh, thousand days in office. Uh, and ex- carefully watched uh, as um, the Federal Reserve Act, child labor laws, the eight-hour day, railroad reform, the Federal Trade Commission were all enacted step by step because he knew that the presidents sort of after the fight between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams over the role of a strong central Uh, government and the role of a strong president as chief executive said, no, 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 we have it all wrong. The founders did not want the president to sit forlorn down Pennsylvania Avenue waiting for pieces of legislation to sort of drift his way. It was the chief executive's role to go before Congress, lay out an agenda, and then wait for Congress to act and then certainly complete the circle by then signing those uh, pieces of legislation into law. What happens after this, and again, um, is this professor turned reform president then faces a new chapter, a chapter that, that he even hinted on Uh, after he was forced to declare war um, in uh, April of 1917. How how unfortunate it would be um, for someone like myself uh, to lead this nation into war. His entire thinking had always been domestic policy. Wilson, again, would then find himself taking on a new role, a role that he wasn't particularly interested in doing. Again, he ran for re-election on a platform of keeping and maintaining neutrality, keeping America out of the war, which he thought would be the best way for Europe to sort of settle that difference that they've, age-old difference that they had fallen into. When we finally get into war, and there are many motivations of that, not enough certainly time to go into this evening, uh, between the sinking of the Lusitania, the Zimmerman telegram, and then the sinking of the Sussex, which would finally uh, turn Wilson's hand, because neutral countries had been overrun, Belgium, uh, for one, and attacks on neutral shipping, Wilson was finally forced uh, to get us into the war. And I'll say only this about Wilson and the war. And I think it's very important because even I think the label here uh, sort of criticizes Wilson and his failures during that time. I think we have to stop and give this person a lot of credit for one thing. Wilson declares war 
asked Congress to declare war uh, on April 2nd, 1917. The first American um, troops, again, we weren't prepared for war, don't find their way to the battlefields of France until October of 1918. Wilson, again, goes before Congress in January of 1918 and issues 14 points. 14 points for peace. January 1918. As we know, because America sent its young men over there, the war would end with the cessation of hostilities in November, November 11th, 1918. So as much as we can say, Wilson brought us into the war, oh, Wilson is responsible for America's entry once again onto the global stage, we have to credit him with, yes, getting us in, but getting us out in about 18 months. When Wilson boarded that ship in December, less than a month after the signing of the armistice, to personally arrive in Paris, He was there in his role as chief executive because who makes treaties? The president. Who ratifies treaties? Congress, the Senate. So criticized for not bringing any members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee with him uh, because, well, he clearly understood his role that it was the president who would make this treaty. So for six months, Woodrow Wilson would find himself in Paris, remaking the world, ill, devastated by the backroom politics uh, that he wasn't really used to, Uh, the headlines of Vive Wilson, where he was hailed as a champion, the savior of the world, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Paris, in London, in Rome, uh, hailing Wilson as a champion of peace, yet when he sat down with these same leaders of these countries uh, for their very intense meetings, uh, they were constantly shifting and compromising and compromising what Wilson could achieve Uh, an open peace that he had called for in the 14 points was not something that was going to be attainable because these European leaders had always, at the end of a conflict, uh, grabbed as much territory as they could, grabbed as much natural resources, uh, took as many foreign territories and colonies, uh, as well as inflicted as much reparations on those who were defeated, um, they weren't going to buy into open covenants openly arrived at, not uh, placing uh, heavy reparations on um, um, the, those who were defeated. So we can't say that Wilson, in many ways, uh, was a failure because of these personal negotiations. He came back with the treaty in hand, And there were compromises that had to be made. But Wilson believed that it was his League of Nations, uh, an international organization, for the first time a world body that would settle future disputes. 
in a gentlemanly sort of way, would keep the world from, again, falling into these senseless uh, wars and killing many innocents along the way, not only soldiers, but civilians and those from the neutral countries as well that sort of were engulfed in these conflicts. Of course, we know the story that the American Senate did not ratify our partition, our um, participation uh, in the League of Nations. And in many ways, it was because of the illness, uh, personal illness, that would keep Wilson sidelined as the debate was heating up. In September of 1919, just a few months after this portrait was taken, Woodrow Wilson, on a whistle-stop campaign, bringing his message to the American people directly to convince the American people what was in his treaty and what was in his covenant, suffered a devastating stroke in Pueblo, Colorado. By the time the train got back to Washington, Wilson lay crippled on his left side, blind in that left eye, uh, and unable to speak. For 19, the next 19 months of his presidency, Wilson lay ill in a sickbed. When the vote for the treaty came up to the Senate the following March, Wilson had not been even able to communicate instructions uh, to those members of the Senate who were in favor of the treaty. And the treaty went down in defeat. In 1920, just before leaving office, Wilson, however, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And that same year, the League of Nations began meeting at the Palais Wilson in Geneva. So we can't say that perhaps Wilson and his League were a failure altogether. I think we witnessed this week when the nations of the world have come together for the UN general meetings that in many ways Wilson's idea of a League then transformed after a second world war would become the United Nations. And I always like to end with a quote as Wilson ended his life. You know, his home here in Washington, D.C., on S Street, was where he actually lived out the remainder of his years. He left office. He finished his term in 1921. He continued to live as a private citizen uh, on S Street, till his death in 1924. He said from the steps of S Street, I can predict with absolute certainty that within another generation there will be another world war if the nations of the world do not concert their efforts in a method in which to prevent it. So I think the image that we are looking at here really is that of a visionary. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Um, to, to learn a little more of the story, I really do encourage you to go to Woodrow Wilson House at 2340 S Street. Um, it's one of the most personal of these presidential museums I've ever seen, and certainly well worth your trip across town. Thank you very much, Frank, for coming. Thank you.